We're going to dive right in this morning, uh, talking through the rest of maybe we'll get through the rest of chapter 2 in 1 John. And I want to continue to reiterate, if as we go through a series like this, I really want to encourage you to read the chapter every day during the week. So hopefully this week you are reading chapter 2 every day. Only takes you three or four minutes to read through a chapter like that. So easy reading, uh, and, and it just gives you time to really read what we're talking about. So as we discuss it on Sunday, my hope is, my prayer is, the Lord has already been working in, in the truth that's in there. If, if Sunday is the first time you crack that chapter open, it's the first time you're hearing these verses, um, the Lord doesn't get a whole lot of time to really work that out in you. And, and so my hope is, as I preach a message, as I talk here from the pulpit, what it's doing is reiterating what the Spirit has already taught you through the week. That's my hope and prayer. But I want to ask us, how often do we open the Word of God with the intention of being changed by it? I know we're not starting out with like a light, easy on-ramp this morning, but uh, this is where the Lord brought me this week as I was uh, praying through this message and going over it, is how often do we open the Word of God with the intention of not the possibility, not acknowledging like, oh yeah, God can always speak to me anytime He wants to. Some of us, we do the uh, reading the Bible through in a year, and I love that. I love that um, at least two of us, three of us, I think, are, are engaging in the conversations afterward. I'd love it if you would all do it. That'd be awesome. But uh, when you open that app, when you open your Bible, however you uh, read the Word of God each day, how often do you open it with, with a prayer or with a thought of, all right, Lord, here we go. I'm going to read, I'm diving into your word, and I pray that you transform me as I read this. My guess is most of us, we read it because we're supposed to. Uh, I have, you know, my Bible app that tells me these are the, reading Jeremiah uh, this, this morning, uh, and we're, then, we're, then we're into First Timothy, and we're reading, you know, Psalms and Proverbs, okay, and it's so easy to get into, into just a habit of reading, or just a, a program of reading, but the whole purpose of the Word of God is not to be memorized, not to uh, sit in the recesses of our mind as just mere knowledge. The, the entire reason God put pen to paper and, and inspired uh, people to write His Word is so that we would be transformed. Not so that we could have cool Bible verses memorized and be able to impress everybody with how many verses we can spout off, but it's so that that Word could transform us. What additional resources are necessary for the Word of God to be able to transform us? None. None. And as we'll go through, as we'll see in chapter 2, John is pretty clear, that's not what's necessary. Sometimes we can think, well, like, well, I I, I need to get a new commentary. I don't have my study Bible with me, so it's it's pointless for me me to even read the Bible. I don't have access to my study Bible. All these different things. Uh, Some of, I hear often people tell me, oh, I just don't understand what I'm reading. We don't need any additional resources. See, there's this thing called the Spirit of God, and it lives inside of us. And man, when He illuminates a Scripture to us, there's no preacher, there's no commentary, there's no resource out there that can match what the Spirit can do when He brings a verse to light in your heart and in your life. The goal isn't to obey our pastors, our teachers, and do what they say. The goal is to abide in Christ and to allow Him to transform us. I think churches are too full of people who only believe what has been said from the pulpit, and they don't even know why. We just went through our whole foundational series. The whole point of that was so we wouldn't be that sort of person that simply believes something because we're told to believe that, or simply because that's in our church's statement of faith. I I hope as we went through our, our, our foundation series that you wrestled with some of that, that it caused you to, to think, to pray, to seek out answers on your own, to really dig into it, and to determine, what do I believe? What do I see from the Word of God? That's the goal. I, I know it maybe sounds counterproductive, but stop listening to what I say. Go figure it out for yourself. 
If, if something that I say rubs you the wrong way, awesome. That, honestly, that's part of my preaching style is to push buttons and ask questions that are difficult that make you think. It's not to give you answers. It's to cause you to think. That's my goal in life. I love to cause people to think, to ask the right question that just disrupts somebody's system enough that they have to go find the answers for themselves because it's always better when we find the answers in our own journey as we discover them ourselves. It's going to hit much harder than me saying, this is what you should believe. So that's what chapter 2 is about, so let's just dive right into that. Starting 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, again, I'll be teaching from the ESV, so if you want to follow along in the same version, that's where I'm going to be preaching from the ESV. 1 John 2, 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Last week, we saw just how blunt John can be when he called the people liars who said they knew God, but they didn't obey His commandments. I mean, it, it doesn't get a whole lot more blunt than that. I mean, can you imagine sitting with uh, myself, your, your pastor, and, and you saying, I love Jesus, and I say, you're a liar. Ooh, well, he's not very nice. Um, newsflash, I'm not very nice. Uh, if, you're new to, if you're new to church, uh, I'm, I, I tend to be a little bit like John. I try to say it like it is sometimes. And, uh, but here's John being blunt again and just coming right out and saying it. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Very black and white, John can be. It's just not there, he's saying. If that doesn't uh, make you pause for a moment, there's a problem there. I, even myself, I read this verse and I think, oof, is there any love of the world in me? And that leads me, uh, I don't know if you uh, think critically when you're reading the Word, I hope you do, but it makes me ask the question, well, what things are covered in John's idea of the world? When, when the Scripture here is saying, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Because I'm going to be honest, I love steak, and it's part of the world. Uh, I love uh, Techie stuff. I'm a techie person. I love, you know, things like that. Uh, I, I enjoy that stuff. So is that covered? Do I have to not love that? So that's what it led me down, thinking through this, processing through what I was reading here. Well, John actually covers what I think he's saying here uh, in that and in the next verse, in verse 16. He says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay, so we got a clearer picture of what this means. If you're aware of that, of what this is saying, this is a theme which traces back to Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, this is an interesting uh, portion of Scripture. If you've read through, if you've not read through Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, there's some powerful stuff that happens here, some amazing things to really dive into and study for us to live out our faith uh, in Jesus. Uh, but these are the three areas that Satan tries to tempt Jesus when he's in the wilderness. So uh, the first one is the desires of the flesh. You might have heard of these referred to as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Um, they're the three major themes in that. Um, the ESV translates these in John into the desire. So the desires of the flesh, tracing that back to Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, says, And the tempter came, tempter being Satan and him being Jesus, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, I just want to pause. Has anybody ever started with a, well, if you were a real Christian, if you really love Jesus, uh, I don't know if you've ever been hit with that, but I, that's kind of what I hear when Satan's hitting Jesus with this. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The desires of the flesh is living in a way which seeks to glorify our fleshly desires, that that, that becomes the goal, is giving in or, or satisfying the desires of our flesh. Specifically, Satan tries to use Jesus' hunger against him. Any of you ever went 40 days without food voluntarily? Me either. Uh, I haven't done that. I know there are some people that have done like the 40-day fast and things like that, um, but I've not done, have not gotten to the 40-day fast yet. So my guess is Jesus is pretty hungry. I know he's got supernatural abilities there, and, but he was still human. He was still man. And so he's pretty hungry. And that's where Satan tries to hit him. 
So I think a pretty natural question to pull from this is, do we allow our stomachs to control us, to control our lives? Do we live based on what we want, what we desire? To me, it's, it's the uh, key point of just about any diet that you, if you ever tried one, is you realize pretty quickly, I live a lot by the desires of my stomach because I try to just curb a little bit of what I'm eating and I'm unhappy all of a sudden. I'm miserable. I'm cranky. I, I'm, you know, just not the person I want to be. Why? Well, because we're used to satisfying the desires of our flesh in that way, in that capacity. It's one of the reasons when if you've ever heard me preach on stewardship, uh, most people will preach on time, talent, and treasure. And I think, oh, that's great. That's nice. But let's go one step further. Let's talk about temple. We need to take care of what God has given us in, in our temple. If the Holy Spirit lives inside of this, then it matters what I put into this. It matters how I take care of this uh, and the effort that I put into it. If I just live by the desires of my flesh, then I'll wind up like I have in my past, uh, overweight, tired, uh, and not healthy. Uh, it wasn't until I can't even remember what age I started to actually care and take good stewardship of my body, and I hope you do the same. But not just thinking about our stomachs. Do we allow other physical desires to control our lives? I think maybe the better question is, what physical desires are the ones that get you? What are the ones where the enemy tries to pull you in and get you? Because my guess is, because you're all human beings here, I think, for the most part, uh, you have fleshly desires, And so it's going to be a constant battle. Paul talks about that battle in Romans, his battle that will always wage until you are no longer of human flesh, until you are glorified and you get the glorified body. You'll always have this battle that will wage uh, every day. You'll fight these desires and things that are going on. So he covers the desires of the flesh, and then he gets into the desire of the eyes. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. It says, again, the devil took him, that's Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now you'll notice a theme if you've never been introduced to this uh, time of Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. Satan uses like 90% truth. He uses a lot of truth with just a little bit of lie dashed in there to try to get Jesus to do what he wants. Same thing he did with Adam and Eve. Same thing he does with us. And what does Jesus do? He comes back with what? He comes back with the Word of God. He says, this is what the Word says. See, you can use the Word of God to achieve the ideas, to achieve the goals of the enemy. There have been people in history, Hitler being one of the prime examples of people who use the Word of God to accomplish the work of the enemy. It seems, con- it seems weird, but man, you just dash a little bit of lie on top of truth, and it sounds real good. It's why I'm not going to name any specific names, but some of those TV preachers out there are doing so well, because you use a lot of the Word of God and just a little bit of lie, and you toss it in there, and it sounds real good. If you just serve Jesus, everything's going to go well for you. You're going to be rich and successful, and everything's going to go well. Your bank account will be great. Man, wouldn't that be nice? But that's a lie. See, that's what Satan's tactic is. And Jesus, he doesn't just know the word. He knows it applied to life. He knows that verse sounds good, but that is not what it means. Because Jesus didn't just have the word memorized. He was showing us how to live it out, how to turn it from knowledge to wisdom. See, Satan loves to use our eyes to show us the things we can have if only we compromise a little bit. This could all be yours if you just compromise a little bit. And sure, if Satan were to come to us as we would expect him, we, you know, the red and the pitchfork and the, and the horns and whatnot, and say, hey, if you just worship me, I'll give you everything you want. Most of us would probably say no, I would hope. But that's not exactly the way he comes at it with us. See, most, one of the most effective forms of this is to convince us to put on hold what God has called us to do so we can focus on ourselves and our own kingdom. Convincing us we'll have the time to give God 
once we've achieved our goals. This is how I see this played out in our current culture today. Many of us have fallen into the trap of living in a state where we know we're not giving God our best, but we think it's a temporary situation that will remedy as soon as fill in the blank. I know, I'm, I know I'm not giving God my everything, but man, as soon as this is done, then I'll just be able to give him everything. As soon as the baby's born, as soon as the kids are grown, as soon as the kids are all out of the house, as soon as I get this new job, as soon as I can retire, then I'll be able to give Jesus everything. So I know, God, I know I'm not giving you my best, but this is, it's just a temporary thing. We'll get over it. Now, if we're honest, you don't need to raise your hands. How many of us have hit those goals, and we just moved on to a new thing to replace it with, and a new thing to replace it with, and a new thing. The enemy's always got a new thing, like, oh, okay, you, well, you got the job now, but now you got to show them that you're serious. You got you to invest some time, really invest in that, and really show them that, that you're here to, to, so that you can advance further. So you just push God off a little bit more for just a little bit longer. I mean, if we're honest, if we were to spend some time with the Lord and, and, and sit before him and say, God, Am I giving you everything I have? Because he gave us everything. And so in turn, it's only right that we turn and give him everything we have. Now that doesn't mean for 99% of us, it's not going to mean that we quit our jobs and we go these drastic measures that some people will do to try to give some false sense of righteousness. But to be able to sit before God, as we'll cover later in this chapter, to sit before him and, and know that he has complete authority and that we give him our absolute best at all times. And that we're not just putting him off, hoping that our kingdom will get to the place where it can have space for Jesus. So whatever that is, whatever that blank is that Satan has convinced you is more important than Jesus, let me just make it clear it's not. There is nothing in our life that exists that's more important than him even for a temporary period of time. Nothing should ever take that place because it becomes what? That's an idol. Even if it's a temporary idol, in your mind you think it's only a temporary, it's still an idol. So desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 7 says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And just see, man, see here how the devil uses Scripture to lie to Jesus. And I'm telling you, one of the things I've I've said before, the enemy of God's best for your life is not like this evil, horrible, running off and cheating on your spouse and all this craziness. For most of us, we're not going to fall for that trick. The enemy of God's best is good. And so he's going to use scripture. He's going to convince you it sounds really good, it's, whether it's a job, a, 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 a somebody that you're in relationship with, whatever. It's going to sound really good. And you'll even be able to use scripture to back it up. I've seen people use scripture to, to why they should put their family before Jesus. I've, you can. You can use scripture to do that, to make up that lie. Satan does it right here. But to know what the word of God says, to be able to refute it with the truth, that's what's important thinking that we're a special case, and God will understand, is just another tactic of Satan. That's what he's trying to get Jesus to do here. See, I hear church people using this reasoning often. We usually couch it in good biblical language, though. Anytime we try to convince someone, I hear someone talking about something that's going on in their life, they're talking about a stress that they have, or, or some consequence of a bad decision, and I hear church people say, everything will work out fine, God's got you, God, God will take care of everything, He'll pave the road, it'll all be great, God works everything out to the good of the, you know, for your good, right? And I think, no, Brad. You made some really dumb choices, and you're probably going to have to deal with some of the consequences of those dumb choices. That's what's going to happen. As a matter of fact, if you were following Jesus in the first place, Brad, none of this would have happened. If you'd have just followed Jesus from the get-go, that's what's going on. As you, like I said earlier, I tend to not be very nice sometimes. 
But I just don't think it's right for us when we, especially when we hear someone struggling. I would so much, I love it when I see someone sharing a struggle. And instead of someone just going, God's got you, it's all gonna be great. It might not be great. So stop lying to them in first place. But to just lay your hand on them and say, can I pray for you? Can I walk this out with you? I'm not just gonna sugarcoat this with some good biblical language like Satan tries to do. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk through this season with you. Maybe your spouse left you or something, some horrible thing's going on. I've heard that. And God's going to make it all work out for good. Don't you worry. Man, no, you know what? No, the next season of your life might really stink. It might be really hard. And there are going to be times where you wonder if God is even there. But let me walk through it with you so I can remind you that he is there. Instead of just making you feel bad because you can't see God and everybody keeps telling you that God is good and God's going to make everything work out for good. But maybe they just walk through it with you. And be Jesus beside you. Be the light of Christ. Be the the voice and and the heart and the patience and the kindness and the goodness of Jesus in that valley you're in. That will remind you. I I won't need to say it, but that will remind you that God is good and that he's got you. Just as it would be sinful for Jesus to have thrown himself off of a building just so that he could see that God has got him and that God will protect him. It's sinful for us to live however we want and then expect God to work everything out for our good. Because if you know that scripture, what does it say? God works everything together for the good of those who love him. What does John say that those who love him, what do they do? They walk in his ways. They obey his commandments. So that's what, when, when we walk away from Jesus and we make a bunch of dumb decisions and we make some bad choices and we get involved with some bad people and we do bad things and we come back to Jesus and go, okay, make it all good. Make everything work out for my good. And he's like, well, the stuff you did wasn't, that, that wasn't love for me. That was love for yourself. That was love for the world. That, that's not going to work out good. You're going to have to suffer some of the consequences of those bad choices. And that's a reality that we just don't talk about when we're giving someone godly counsel. Sometimes we have to say, yeah, yeah it's going to suck. It's going to be rough. Life is not going to be good for a period of time, but I'm not going to walk away from you. Man, that, that's what we need. Christians that are willing to say that. Yeah, whew, man, you made some bad choices. Let's walk this out together. I'm not going to fix everything for you. I'm not going to make it a whole lot easier maybe, but I will be here. I will hear you out. I'll hear your struggle. I'll point you to Jesus at every chance I get. I'll continue to point your eyes back to him because he is good even when things are rough. So we do that. We go off. We do those things and we come back. I've seen it time and time again. People make all these bad choices. They come back and then, you know, then they're in love with Jesus again and then they get ticked off at God when he doesn't make everything better. He doesn't fix everything immediately. We need to realize that sometimes, God, all the time, God loves us. But sometimes that love is, is displayed in allowing us to walk out the consequences and to see what it looks like, what it feels like to live outside of his favor, outside of his goodness, outside of his protection. That, man, that'll make someone come to Jesus. And sometimes we we couch that. We, we cushion that fall sometimes with our desire to be Jesus ourselves. And sometimes all we really need to do is walk through that season with them and love them through it. The next verse, verse 17 in 1 John 2, says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What John is saying might seem harsh here. You might be like, man, John's kind of a jerk like the pastor is. But there's a really simple solution to all these worldly problems in this struggle, abide in Christ. That's the whole point of what John is saying here. Abide in Christ. I challenge you uh, this week to go back to chapter 2 and count how many times it says abide. How many times the word abide is in there. If you want to look for a theme in 1 John chapter 2, it is clear beyond measure. Abide is the main it's not a con- condemnation. It's not him trying to preach hell and brimstone and fire on people. It's trying to tell people to abide in Christ. Do the will of God and abide in God forever. Verse 18. 
Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. See, the term Antichrist here, uh, you might think, oh, it's like this, the Antichrist. But no, the term John is using here, uh, it's referring to adversaries of the gospel. That's what he's saying here, that many adversaries of the gospel will come. And at the time that John is writing this, just a few decades since the church has begun, there have already been so many attacks from people trying to dismantle Christianity. And if you do your research, you look into it, you'll notice uh, there are some, sure, there are some outright assaults against the gospel, against Christianity, against the way. But more often than not, the most destructive antichrist or adversaries were ones that came into the church community, that they looked like Christians, they looked like believers, they sounded good because they used good Scripture passages and good Bible verses to get in, but their goal, their aim was not Jesus. Those are always the most destructive, and that's a lot of what John is hitting at here. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. It's interesting to note that these adversaries John is talking about, these adversaries to the gospel, at one time were in community with John's audience. Because he says they were, they, were, they were in this relationship with us. He says they went out from us. They were not of us. They were a part of our group, but they weren't of us because they didn't share what? They didn't share the vision. They didn't share the mission. They didn't share the values of that group of people. And it was through community and focusing on Jesus, these antichrists were rooted out. See, the more we share our lives with one another, either the closer we'll draw to Christ together or it becomes clear who's really not here to draw close to Christ. It's one of the reasons I believe we have handfuls of people that they pop in at 1031 on Sunday morning and they're out the second the bell rings, the second the pastor finishes his prayer. Why? Because it's real easy to feel like a good Christian, to look like a real Christian as long as our lives don't intersect too much. But it's this sharing, melding of lives, of inviting people into our lives and letting things get messy there. Uh, that's when we start to realize, like, man, this person really doesn't want Jesus. We hang out, we spend time together. Everything sounds good on Sunday. They're even part of the worship team, but, man, living it out. It just seems like Sunday is the only time they're actually a Christian. And you don't find that stuff out until you start living life, until you start sharing life together. And I think, I know that's why you look at that early church, man, they, they had community down they knew who was in it. You spend enough time with somebody, you start to realize we're not exactly going in the same direction here. We got two different goals here. And the closer you share your life with people, part of this family, that starts to become very, very clear. And I'm not going to speak anything against anybody individually or specifically, but the people that keep a distance, there's a reason they keep a distance. So, we, as a church, growing closer as families, sharing time, sharing our homes with each other, spending time over meals, over community, doing things with one another, man, you begin to share like, man, I'm very different from this person, but we got the same goal, and that's Jesus. And so we have this commonality. We should also remember, John is not writing to people who met in an official church building. See, none of the letters written in the New Testament were written to churches that had a building like ours. See, when you read a book like Ephesians or Colossians or any of those, and it's, he's writing to the church in Ephesus or the church in Colossae, uh, it's easy to think like, oh, yeah, the one church that meets in that building in, in Ephesus or Colossae. But there, there existed none of that stuff. There were absolutely no church buildings at this time. There weren't church buildings, actually, I think until like 300 A.D., it's the first time they started doing church buildings. So before this, every single letter here is written to house churches. They were considered the church of Ephesus. All of the house churches that met were one church, and they would pass these letters around to each of the, the, the house churches, and they would read it to, to each other. And so it's not like he's speaking to this kind of group of people. He's speaking to this group and this group and this group and that group and this group. That's the church of 
the area, now we don't exactly know the audience that John was writing to, but since there were no church buildings, we know he wasn't writing to just one set group of people who met in a church building. You might wonder how all of these small microchurches or whatever you want to call them functioned without an elder present at every meeting or that someone was in charge to make sure that the teaching didn't go off the rails and get into these crazy things. But John covers how the early church did this in the next verse, verse 20. He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. So there's an anointing that happens when we come into his presence, it, it doesn't become, our, our reading comprehension isn't nearly as important as being spirit-filled believers. And when we are in the word of God, asking the Holy Spirit to give us understanding, to preach to us as we read the word. See, because they have the Holy Spirit in them, John is saying, they have the knowledge necessary to identify these antichrists. And that's how it happened. They shared life together, they shared meals together, they worshiped together, they prayed together, and it became pretty clear that Brad over here isn't interested in Jesus. He's interested in, in taking control, he's interested in leading the conversation, he's, you know, he's got his own goals. He's trying to mix whatever he believes into Jesus or the way or Christianity. That's how they began to know. Verse 21 says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Now, again, you've got to remember, he's writing to a group of people who don't have the New Testament. They don't have what we have. They don't have the resources we have. They have the Old Testament. They have the gospel that was preached to them. And they have the Holy Spirit. That's what they have to work with. And somehow they managed to have, because they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have a nice cool church app, they didn't have any of the things that we use to keep us connected, to keep uh, the information disseminated the way it should be, and, and to keep us all plugged in. They didn't have any of that. They literally didn't even have the New Testament. But John is telling them, basically, you've got everything you need. You've got everything you need to, to, to walk this out, to live this, to identify these antichrists, because you have the truth. John is reminding his readers they know the truth, but he's also pointing out, and it seems kind of common sense, well, why is he pointing out that no lie is of the truth? That kind of, it's easy to figure out. See, as soon as they realize that someone in their group is beginning to teach a lie, they can know, surefire, that person's not following Jesus. His goal is not his, because there is no lie with Jesus. And this is right after he brings them back to remembrance of Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. That there's these three things, these three times that Satan tries to use a lot of truth with a little bit of lie. And John's making it clear, a lot of truth and a little bit of lie is a lie. The whole thing is a lie. Because the goal, the point, the manipulation, the deceitfulness, that's the problem. It's the goal, and that goal is not Jesus. No lie is of the truth. And he goes on in verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Some of you know I grew up as a Jehovah Witness. This verse makes it very clear that they're adversaries to the gospel. Why? Because they deny that Jesus is the Christ. They want to say, well, he's a good guy, but he was really, he was Michael the archangel who God made into a human being and then slapped the name Jesus on him and then, you know, all this garbage. But John is being very clear with his message. Anyone who puts uh, into question that Jesus is the Christ and whoever denies Jesus denies God the Father. Why would John be covering that specifically? Well, John is directly going against some of the false teaching in his time. Look at verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. See, there's some specific false teachings of this time that John's going against that were trying to mix Christianity and Judaism especially. That, that was one of the most dangerous. Why? Because uh, many would assume that John's audience had a lot of uh, Jude, uh, people that were in Judaism, and so it makes it sound really good if you just mix the two together. You just sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on Judaism, and boom, you've got Christianity, and it's just not how it works. It was so much easier for them to claim, well, Jesus was a really good guy. Talk to anybody who uh, 
who believes in Islam. And they'll acknowledge Jesus was a good guy, he's a good prophet, but he wasn't God. That's what John's talking about here. He says it might sound good, it might sound really good to say, yeah, Jesus was a great guy, his teachings were really good, uh, but he just wasn't God. And that's what John is coming against here. They tried to deny the deity of Christ, but maintain that God the, yeah, God the Father, he, yeah, that he's, all of that's still true. They just they missed it a little bit when they called Jesus God. And man, look at the Jehovah Witness movement. They, they, they make the gospel make sense to the everyday man. And that's why it's so dangerous. Well, how, how can God be 100% God, and Jesus be 100% God and 100% man? Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Oh, you know what? We'll make it make sense. He wasn't God. He was 100% man. Boom, done. Easy. That's what they do. And that's why it can be so dangerous because they try to mix these two together and uh, make it make sense. Verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. See, John's calling them back to their roots. Again, He's not calling them back to the gospel roots from the New Testament that they have in their church that every single one of them can read. That's not, it's the teaching they had from the apostles. They didn't need any new teachings, John is telling them. They already had the full gospel. And the full gospel is the gospel, not the gospel and this, or the gospel and that, or the gospel minus this. It's just the gospel. In verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Now, if you know your Bible times, there were two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if you learned in Sunday school, which again, I didn't learn any of this stuff until like college, so uh, some of this stuff still sticks a little bit with me. What's the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? There's a little song. I know some of you know it. There you go. There's my... There's my Christian school wife coming through for me. The Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in an afterlife. That's part of the song. I guess you didn't hear that song. Uh, the Sadducees didn't believe that there was an afterlife. They believed you died, that was it, you were done. Didn't matter how good you were, didn't matter how bad you were, you were just done. That was it. No afterlife for the Sadducees. So, hmm, why is John talking about this? Because they're trying to mix Sadducee beliefs into Christianity and mix it together. And John just very clear. What's the promise that he made to us? Eternal life. Eternal life. Clear as day, black and white refutation of that false belief. Verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are, who are trying to deceive you. Now, remember, these letters are being handed to these house churches. Maybe they're copied, but they're handed out. They're spread among these house churches. They're all reading them together. I can see how maybe one of the house churches reads this letter from John and thinks, does he, does he think we believe this garbage, like these false teachers? Like, we, we, we threw them out. We don't believe this. So John's making it clear. I'm not writing this about you. I'm writing this about those who are trying to deceive you. This this portion, this, you know, because I can, I can see myself getting a certain type of way if someone wrote something to me and telling me, you know that we have eternal life. Like, yeah, I know. I believe the gospel. I believe it. And so John is saying, no, no, that this information, these truths are made to shut up the people who are trying to, to deceive you. Verse 27. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, this is interesting. This is an interesting concept because, as I told you, early church, there was no pastor. There was no sermon time. That was not in their church. The, the order of service we have, you will not find in the early church. Being that John is writing to house churches, he's making it clear that they don't need someone to come in and teach them. What I take from this is, I shouldn't have a job. And I, I'm preaching to you the message that I see from the Word of God. I shouldn't have a job. That wasn't the intention of the early church. 
They didn't have pastors and teachers like that. But what happened was they came together, and every single one of them they shared together. They prayed for each other. One of them would share an insight that they had maybe from the Word or something that God spoke to them, and they would, they would maybe search that out. They'd talk it through. But it was mutual church. There was no spectator-type church service. That didn't happen. When they gathered, they all came together as fellow ministers of the gospel. Not one person was elevated above another. There was no uh, givers and takers. There was no consumers and contributors. It was just, you came to, why would you be there if you weren't coming to contribute? That was church for them. That's what it was. And in my humble opinion, I think we kind of ruined it along the way somehow. And we made it a spectator event where we come to church and we just receive. Now, I'm in conversation with some people regarding these concepts, and I've been saying, I'm not against there being a Sunday morning teaching, but if that becomes the sum total of what we think church community is, we have failed miserably to accomplish what God has called us to do. That is not the aim, the goal of church Church is the word ecclesia. It means the gathering of people. It's God's people. That's who we are. And the reason we gather is not to hear, to receive, to take. It is to contribute together. That's why community was so important to them. That Their church services were a meal, some worship, maybe some crying, some praying, some shouting, some celebrating, some sharing from the Word. That was church. And so even down to the way that we practice communion, that wasn't how it was supposed to be. How did Jesus practice communion with the disciples in the Last Supper? It's in the term. It was a supper. It was a meal. And there are some churches today that that's how they do communion. It's a meal. They do a little potluck. That's communion. That's how it was initially presented, and that's how it was intended to be. It wasn't just this one-time little ceremony where we eat this thing that tastes like styrofoam and drink some grape juice uh, it was a meal. It was an actual meal. And so you can see the encouragements in the Word when it says, hey, if someone's hungry, don't, don't eat before everybody gets there. Why? I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, communion wafers never filled me up. But that's the whole, it was all community-based. It was all relationally based in the early church. Uh, honestly, if the church was functioning as it should at 100% capacity, I wouldn't have a job, and I'd be good with that because that's how it was designed to be. You shouldn't need me to teach you the Word because you have the Holy Spirit. That's what John's saying. You have the knowledge. You have the capacity to hear from God. He's there. Uh, that's one of the reasons that Roman Catholics have got it so wrong is because you have to go to them to confess your sins. You have to go to them for so many things. They're the, they're the ones. They're so important. They're not any better than anybody else. And the fact that I stand up on a platform here frustrates me at times because it makes it seem like I'm better, or I've got something that you don't have. I don't. There is no, you know, Platinum Jesus Plus membership. It's just Jesus. Same Spirit of God that lives in me lives in you. You have just as much capacity to hear from the Word. Sure, I've done some studying. I I have a degree literally in Bible, which is great, but that doesn't make it easier for me to hear from God. Sometimes it makes it harder. I can make it way too intellectual. And so what John is talking about here is engaging in community. If God's people could gather without a building like the early church, engage in community and mutual sharing, exhortation, teaching, praying, worshiping, there, would, there should be no need for a professional teacher. That's what John's saying. Now, I could make it sound better and make it seem like I should still have a job, but that's not what it's saying. It's saying you don't need someone to be a professional teacher. And it's one of the reasons why, I'll be honest with you, you might think I spend like 20, 30 hours in sermon prep every week, about two or three. That's where my time is spent. Because that's the value I think the teaching has versus life on life, discipleship, engaging in relationship, talking with people, spending time with people. To me, that's the goal of a shepherd. That's the goal of of the position that God has called me to. The teaching, this is great, but man, if this is your only meal throughout the week, you're missing it. That's why you're so hungry. That's why spiritually you feel so dead, so dry. I was listening to a song this morning, and I just, you know, brought tears to my eyes as I was listening to it. It was just, come up out of that grave, it was saying. And and all I saw was, I didn't see unsaved. I saw church people who put themselves laid back down in a grave because it's just more comfortable there. It's just easier. 
and then they feel, they feel drained, they feel dead, they feel spiritually dying because their pastor just doesn't give them the right food. Man, it was never one person's job to give you the teaching that you need. It, that happens through community. That happens through relationship with Jesus and through consuming the word and letting the Holy Spirit speak to us in our own time. If the early church didn't need a professional teacher, certainly we who have access to so many more resources, we don't need one either. Now, it's great. I, I still love to do this. I love to teach. I love to preach. I enjoy this part. I'm not, I don't want you to hear like, oh, I hate this part. It's stupid. I shouldn't even do it. It's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is if this is the only teaching you get, if you're here just because you think it's my job to feed you the primary meal. See, I heard someone argue one time, well, if, the, if it's not the pastor's job to preach, then why did uh, Jesus tell uh, Peter to feed his sheep? He wasn't talking about a sermon. He was talking about a life. He's talking about a lifestyle of feeding. If, if, any, if any of you ever had any livestock, if you only feed them once on Sunday, guess what? They're going to die like every plant has ever been in my house because they need more than that. They need constant nourishment. Not even just feeding. is not even just about food. If, if all I ever did with my, with my son and my daughter was threw food at them and didn't spend time with them and didn't invest them and didn't hug them and didn't love them, they wouldn't be fed. They would have food, but they wouldn't be fed. And that's not what, and Jesus wouldn't, when he was speaking to Peter, it was so much more than just preaching sermons. It was a whole lifestyle. Next verse, verse 28. It says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Can you imagine? I, I, I want you to literally try to imagine this in this moment. Can you imagine the thought of standing before Jesus after he comes and being able to look him in the eye, knowing that you lived your life completely for him? Can you imagine that? standing before perfection, before true holiness and righteousness, knowing that you lived your life for him. That's what it's saying. So that when he appears, we may have confidence. I don't know about you, man, but I hear that song I can only imagine. I'm thinking like, this guy's a knucklehead. Of course you're gonna fall down on our face and have nothing to say. When we stand before righteousness like that, but we'll look at what John's saying. That we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And that's, that's a lifestyle worth searching for, worth trying to live for, in a way that when he does come, of course, <laughs> broken humanity, there's gonna be that tension there. But being able to look him in the eye and say, I know I gave it everything I had. Man, there's nothing, nothing in this world that could be worth more than that. I don't care if it's your job, your family, whatever, Nothing could be worth more than being able to look Jesus in the face and know we gave it everything we had and held nothing back, put nothing before him, didn't put him off. Anytime he spoke, we jumped. Man, that would be awesome. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See, this is a good test for the church to examine whether or not someone is truly a Christian. Do they practice righteousness? Not, notice that it's not about do they, good, do, they do good deeds? Do they throw money in the, in the plate? That's, that's not at all what this is talking about. This is practicing righteousness. See, righteousness is so much more than good deeds. We all know people that live I don't know we all know people, but maybe you know somebody who lives a crazy lifestyle, is selfish to the thousandth degree, is only about themselves, but they donate to a charity because it helps them feel better. That's not someone who practices righteousness. And sometimes we can get into that mode or we can think, oh, that person's a Christian because they give a lot of money or because they show up at church events and they do these things or they, they come to church every Sunday. That doesn't make someone a Christian. Practicing righteousness, John is saying, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So what can we take away from today? We cannot allow ourselves to get caught up in the lies of the enemy, which convince us to give into the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Basically, living for yourself. John is clear. If we're going to live for ourselves, 
the love of the Father is not in us. If we're able to put Jesus off and live without any tension there or any problem, that's a, that's a real problem. But if you're here this morning, as we, as we talked about that, we talked about putting Jesus off, and you're in that situation, and it hits you deep, and you realize, man, I've been doing that. I've been putting Jesus off, and I know I have because I'm, I'm trying to accomplish my next goal. I'm trying to hit my next step. I'm trying to hit my next whatever. And I've been thinking that it's just a temporary thing, but I've been in that state for a decade or so. And it's hitting you, man. That's the Spirit of God saying, yep, you're mine, and I'm calling you back. We cannot live for those things. We also need to decide if we're going to learn to abide in Christ and share what he's doing with our brothers and sisters in Christ and live out our faith with one another or just be comfortable being a spectator on Sundays. The Lord has so much more for us. He tells us he's called us to a life that is truly life. Some of us live in depression. We live in constant darkness. We live frustrated with our life simply because we're just not willing to take that step and engage in community and be with God's people and live out our faith together. And that's what some of us need desperately and we're just not willing to take that step. There is so much more. This isn't a message of condemnation, whether it was John's or mine. Neither one were a message of condemnation. They were a a message of calling people to so much more. There is so much more in a life lived for Jesus if we can learn to abide in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for John, who was willing to lay it out so clearly for his audience to be as blunt as was necessary against these false teachings, against these lies of the enemy that sound so good, that use even Scripture to make their point, but in the end are are lies from the pit of hell. Lord, I pray you would give each and every person here, every person watching, the wisdom necessary to see when it's the enemy spouting lies to them, trying to convince them to just compromise a little more. When he's trying to tap into their lust of the eyes, their lust of the flesh, and their pride of life, Lord, make it clear, make it evident, and and cancel the, the agendas and the plans of the enemy in their lives. Lord, I pray we would draw ever closer to you, that we would draw into community, that we wouldn't rely on a teaching on a Sunday morning to, to lead us to you, but it would just be one of the many avenues that we pull in teaching and instruction from you, from your word, and from your people. God, I pray we would live this out. We at New Boys Alliance would be a family of believers who are desperately in love with you when we learn to minister to one another in ways that make the world wonder what it is we got. Lord, I pray you would bless us with your presence as we go today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a great week and abide in him.